0: Today we're going to continue uh, in our series in Romans and uh, we have, uh, we're faced with a uh, a great passage, but um, one that when I, I, I took a look at it, I thought, wow, great, great passage to leave me. This is, a, this is truly an Adam type passage where he would nail this, uh, but we get to, to work t- through it together. So, uh, trusting that the Spirit of God gives me all of the words that I will say and uh, has given me a great week of study, will you stand with me as we contemplate together and read the Word of God? Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Romans chapter 13. And verse 1, this is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. It gives us peace to know, assurance to know that you care not only about our eternity, but the eternity that begins now. We are living the life that you have desired for us, seeking to be those living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. We know that this is spiritual worship. But Lord, we are faced at times with challenges. And and Paul knew this. Uh, because the Spirit of God laid it upon his heart, and it feeds us today to know that we have responsibility how we are to respond to authority around us. Father, for some, this is uh, an, easy, an easy passage. For others, it just gets the blood pressure high. Uh, regardless of where each of us is this morning, we pray that your Spirit will be where we need it to be that it work work upon us, that you would impress upon us the truths that are important for us to know so that we can continue to be those uh, sanctified people, uh, those ones who are pursuing spiritual worship in everything, not just in the expected things of life. So, Father, we look to you for these things. Bless, we pray, give all the help to your servant and for all of us to appreciate what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today, we're going to be looking at uh, Romans 13 and a sermon that I've entitled, Heaven Citizens Under Human Government. I hope you appreciate the graphic. It took me like forever to make it. (laughs) And then about 10 minutes for Peter to fix it. So thank you, Peter, for that. I don't know if you know the word juke, J-U-K-E. Since it's Super Bowl weekend, you might know what a juke is. Uh, but maybe not if you haven't been kind of in the news uh, when it comes to football, sporty terms since t- uh, 2010. The word juke is a term that is often uh, used in sports, and it refers to a deceptive action in which a player moves one direction and then suddenly shifts to another direction. A head fake in basketball would be a great example. Or a couple of months ago when that the Leafs got, remember, remember that move that I think uh, McDavid did? you know, to the, to the Leafs defenseman. Remember that one? Uh, it's going to mean nothing if people are listening to this years from now, but maybe they won't. But it's, a, it's that fake, a juke. But what is a Jesus juke? We've heard this, maybe, some of you. As for me, as a new term, I, read across, I came across it while I was reading an article, but apparently it's in the know. You have to know this because it happens all the time. A Jesus juke is a term that has been coined by an author, John Acuff, in 2010 in one of his blogs, Stuff Christians Like. And there, a- Acuff describes a Jesus juke as happening when someone turns a light conversation into a serious thing, a holy thing. An example of a Jesus juke can maybe be seen in a conversation like this. One person says, I can't believe I spent six hours watching that movie. To which somebody responds what if you'd spent six hours in prayer instead? (laughs) A Jesus juke can make verbal conversations uneasy and bring online conversations to a halt. No matter how good the intentions, bringing in Jesus out of nowhere and inserting a bit of preachiness into the unrelated conversation does not do much to advance the cause of Christ. It's like telling somebody all about their sins as if you were hitting them with a cross and then for them to take the cross and you say, hey, be respectful. Oftentimes we see this, and in most, t- in most cases, it's not an advisable move. In sports, it might be a great move uh, for you if you're scoring, but not a great move if you're not trying to do that, if it's in relation to your witness. I would recommend uh, that you choose another strategy of evangelism. But you know, in the Bible, there are examples of great Jesus jukes. One of them actually uh, is in uh, Genesis. Uh, reading through Genesis in our daily reading, uh, in chapter 39, the most famous Jesus juke, maybe, maybe second famous, and we'll talk about one a little bit later, but Joseph. You remember uh, Potiphar's wife? Potiphar's wife says, Lie with me. What does he do? Right? He does this, you know, about face, and he takes off. You see that Jesus juke there? He dropped it and fled. The text says that he fled from the house. That would be a great example of maybe a scriptural way of juking. So not all bad but here in chapter 13 we are presented with this strange sudden movement. We are, we've been talking about uh, Paul's appeal to, uh, uh, for the believers by the mercies of God to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, that all of their life is spiritual worship. We've been talking about all of what uh, Mark's a true Christian, and then we reach chapter 13, and from verses 1 to 7, we, some, we, we leave, we're left somewhat confused. He will pick up in verse 8, as it were, what he just finished saying in verse 21, but he pauses here in this memorable moment to talk about the authorities. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I think it's still not a popular thing to always want to bring up the government, the government. Now, it might be popular at some times of the year, maybe when you're bound to need to make a decision about voting, but most times it's not exactly the best way to gain a crowd. To talk about the government. But here, for some strange reason, Paul leaves behind, or does he, the conversation about what it means to be people of spiritual worship to talk about the government. Now, obviously, you've picked up on the hint. Paul doesn't leave the conversation. Here, he moves from do not be overcome do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good to a very appropriate conversation direction instruction for Christians to live out their spiritual worship what we're going to be talking about today is about spiritual worship so if we came into the last sermon about let love be genuine, abhor that which is evil, and all of the other um, marks of a Christian that seem so disjointed but really are connected, we must do the same here in chapter 13 from verses 1 to 7. What we're talking about is how the gospel reshapes how we approach not just certain things, but everything. How the gospel helps us to approach all of our relationships, specifically if it makes us love what tends to often be the unlovable. I think uh, the maybe there are three reasons. I put down three that, that maybe we might have Paul discussing this passage with us. Here's, here's three options. First, I think this is an application. This is an application of Paul's instructions that he left with us in verse 21. To leave vengeance to God. Actually, from verse 17 to 21, he's kind of revving us up a little bit because he's saying, "Repay in verse 17, no one evil for evil, to give no thought to do to give thought which is honorable in the sight of all, and if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." And then he concludes in verse 21, "Do not become, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." This is an application of leaving the vengeance to God. In chapter 12, Paul said that rather than taking vengeance into our own hands, we need to give it to the Lord. One of the ways we can execute vengeance is through our government authorities. We often uh, use them as the primary target of our anger, especially when society seems to go downhill. We'd say, well, if it was a conservative government, it wouldn't happen this way. Or, if you will, if it was a liberal government, some might say it wouldn't happen this way. Governments certainly get a lot of, do a lot of wrong. They're not always right. But in one sense, government, and we see this here in this passage, that government stands in for God and executes judgment on his behalf. Is that not clear in, in the first few verses of this chapter? Whoever resists the authorities in verse 2 resists what God has appointed. And that's really what Paul says here. In verse 4, he says that the government is his servant. Second, we see that for the first century church, one of the primary places that they would have to overcome evil with good would have been in their relationship with the government authorities. Uh, Remember that Paul had said to overcome evil with good and to bless those uh, who curse you in verse 14. Well, many of the people who were inflicting evil on the Christians uh, and cursing them were the government authorities in Paul's day. And the way that they are to overcome them, Paul says, is by submitting, honoring, and obeying them, even when they don't always deserve it. In verse 18, Paul, and chapter 12, Paul told them that as much as is possible, live peaceably with everyone, everyone. Again, this is an application. As much as you can, live at peace with the government by honoring and obeying them from your heart wherever you can. The third reason in this section uh, of the letter, uh, many scholars believe that Paul uh, expected Caesar, or at least someone on his behalf, to read this letter. So Paul wants to make it very clear that his intentions are not to overthrow the government. And This is important. I think we can almost sense that M- uh, At the time, many of the philosophers of the world had as one of their primary goals the removal of the existing government and the replacing of it with a government of leaders that were just like them, almost like a a new religion. Uh, Islam in many parts of the world is like that. My Muslim friends tell me that there is uh, no intention here, and I believe them, but at least throughout all of history, that has been Islam's aim. Uh, many Jews in Paul's day were like that. They believed that God, uh, uh, that God wanted them to overthrow the government. Uh, that they just needed to wait for the right time to pull it off and they could overthrow the government in the will of God. These were called zealots. Uh, one of Jesus' original disciples, Simon, was a, a zealot. But Jesus had made abundantly clear that this was not his intention for the church. Right before uh, the crucifixion, you'll remember that Peter picks up a sword to fight, and Jesus said, put it away because his kingdom was not of this world and that they shouldn't use physical force to bring it in. Jesus made it clear that his followers would to offer their lives for their enemies, not take the lives of their enemies like he did for us. Our role is not to overthrow human government. Our role, as Paul tells us, is to influence. Yes, to be salt and light, as Jesus said. To speak prophetically, as it were, to rulers and those in authority. And rebuke them for unrighteousness. To even warn them of judgment to come like John the Baptist did to Herod. Yes, all of those things are good. But that is different than thinking that Christians are supposed to bring in God's rule with themselves as the rulers now there have been many approaches the church has taken with regard to the government over history there's been those who have taken a theocratic approach just to nerd out on you a bit just for a moment and theocracy the church controls the state think vatican or with islam places like saudi arabia a theocracy this is bad Think of, uh, in history, uh, something called Erastianism. The state controls the church. Certain parts of Old Europe were like this. Think of China or Russia. Erastianism. There's Constantinianism, which was a compromise in which the state favors the church. The church makes accommodations with the state in order to preserve favored status. Again, parts of, of Old Europe would fit this category. And then finally... Partnership. The church and the state recognize that each have distinct God given abilities and they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfilling these roles. I think this last one is uh, more familiar to us. But at any rate, Paul wants to make it clear to Caesar when he reads this that when he comes to Rome, it is not to be as a conqueror, it is as a missionary apostle, not a political agitator. And to the Roman Christians that their role is to influence and not to overthrow. So those are some reasons I think might uh, be on the table. So uh, with those in mind, we want to see two particular things in this section as we try to break it down in memorable spaces. The first thing we want to see is these two primary things, the first one being because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must recognize government responsibilities. Because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must recognize government responsibilities. The second thing that we're going to see is because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must respond to government rightly. We must respond to government rightly. Now, one important thing to note as we dive in, and this is very important for us to remember, is that when Paul wrote these things, none of the authorities were Christian. None of them. The authorities he's referring to uh, were at best unfriendly, and at worst actively hostile toward the church. This is a totally pagan and in many ways corrupt government that he is talking about. You see, a big question people often have when we talk about this is, how can I honor a political leader when I don't approve of him or her or endorse a lot of what they stand for? Paul would have not approved of or endorsed of the vast majority of what the governing leaders of his day did. And had there been a free election, he might have voted them out certainly not voted for for any of them but can we just be real for a moment can we just have a a, a time of real talk you you may think of uh, leaders as crazy Uh, some of you might have impressions of some of the leaders that are, are in power in particular and you might think these are just completely batty people they're making decisions like that are absolutely lunatic to make And you may be right, you may be wrong, you may have good cause or bad, but let me introduce you to a man named Caligula. Caligula was the Caesar around the time that Paul was writing, and he was unfit to keep a pet, let alone run an empire. Let me run through a laundry list of his greatest accomplishments. He had his mom and his brother killed to make sure they didn't ever challenge his right to the throne. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently would cross-dress and go out in public. He installed his favorite horse in Siatus as a senator and then promoted him later to council. Pray tell. What had the horse done as senator to earn that promotion? Sometimes we wonder how things happen, how people are promoted. I mean, how does a horse get voted into the Senate? Well, if you're the emperor, I guess you can do that. Welcome, Caligula. Caligula once got mad at the weather and declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea. In fact, he ordered soldiers from the Roman army to get this whip the waves and bring home seashells like plunder from for his uh, from their domain. He had the heads of states, uh, sorry, the heads of statues of deities removed and placed his head in their place. Often during gladiatorial games, which were cruel enough, he would ran, he would take random people from the crowds and throw them into the arena to be attacked by wild animals just to entertain himself. The point is this: he was no fill in the blank. He was no William Lyon Mackenzie King. And after this, the list doesn't get any better. You have Claudius, who might have, uh, might have been a hairless crazy, but he was a bit, uh, he, bit as cruel as anyone. And then he had, uh, the, the, the handover went to Nero, and Nero didn't get any better. By the way, that handover to Nero was devastating because he actually killed Claudius in his sleep. You see the kind of shape that is forming here as we think about the world in which the early church had to, face this passage in Romans chapter 13. When they are called to live life spirit, with spiritual worship in mind, they were called to honor and respect men like this. Ladies and gentlemen, it is into this context that Paul says in verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities and honor them. We must recognize them so, be easy saying I can't honor a political leader whom I don't respect as a person and whose policies I don't approve of when we see what they had to face, as Paul wrote this letter. Tim Keller says the increasingly secular West is only just beginning to experience the level of hostility that first century believers faced. The 21st century persecuted church experiences it every day. It is this type of state which Paul tells the Christians to submit to. So let's keep that in mind as we dig into this first section. Because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must recognize government responsibilities. This is the state's job description, as it were. Now, what was their responsibility? Well, let's look at it. From our text, we see that their responsibility first was to punish the bad. Now, it does not carry the sword for no reason, Paul says. The sword is in the hand of the government for a reason. The sword here represents the power to punish, the powers that were to make war. Now, some of you see sword and wonder whether Paul was endorsing capital punishment. Now, certainly the sword was a symbol of violence and lethal violence at that, but we don't want to jump to too many conclusions here. Uh, this may not be a reference to capital punishment, and it likely is not. But I don't also want to say that it doesn't also include this. Uh, it certainly wasn't that people were getting spanked with a sword. The sword was used in, his li- in the language that Paul chooses for a particular reason. No matter w- what extent this goes to, uh, whatever Paul was talking about in the extreme, we don't want to miss this, that Paul sees that doesn't see the concept itself as punishing the bad as evil. And this is affirmed in other places such as Acts chapter 25 and verse 11 where Paul says to Festus, one of the Roman rulers, if however I am I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. The pretty strong, uh, strongly, this pretty strongly implies that Paul had something uh, to say about death. If he was worthy of death, he deserved death, but... To reiterate, the point of this passage is not to discuss the ins and the outs of lethal force or to outline a just war policy. It is just to say that the government bears the responsibility to punish the wrongdoer. And, let's make no mistake, when they do, they do it in God's name. Whether Christians or not, and they will be accountable to him. It is his word, after all, that they bear. In verse 3, God's, uh, it says that God's servant is doing, is doing well to do so. And so they should do so with diligence and with justice. So when government allows injustice to thrive, for the strong to trample the weak, whether that is a criminal with ordinary citizens or crimes uh, of intent, or cause for uh, the courts to foster people, to, to punish people, whatever the situation may be, we see that they do so as if God was holding the sword. This is important to remember that God allows governments to punish the bad. The government bears the responsibility to protect its citizens from enemies at home and abroad, and they are given this sword or the gun or the bomb for that reason. And when they use it, they use it in his name. Is that hard sometimes for us to understand? Oftentimes when I send my children out to bear my name to, my others, to, their, to their siblings, to my other children, it doesn't seem to bear the same weight. When, they, when, when my eldest goes to my youngest and says, Dad says that you need to come to dinner, that doesn't always work as quickly as I would have liked. Even when they say, Dad wants you to come to dinner, they don't seem to move. But if I was to walk down the stairs and say, come to dinner, they might not still react as fast, but they're reacting faster than what it would be if my eldest said the same. I wonder if we feel the same way about the government when it comes to punishing the bad. When we see their responsibility as those to inflict the sword, to utilize the sword, Do we see as if the sword is in God's hand? Some of us do, but I think some of us at times do not. The second thing we want to see from verse 4 is that it is for our good. It promotes the good. We must recognize government responsibilities because their job is to promote the good. Now, I want to be careful not to to read too much into Paul's words since, again, Paul is not intending to lay out any kind of exhaustive political philosophy, but one of government's jobs is to promote the good, to promote the general welfare of their citizens, and that's certainly how healthy governments have seen themselves throughout history. Again, in our own, um, in our own uh, constitution, as it were, we see everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of the person and the right not to be deprived thereof except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice, right from our charter of freedoms. It's built right into our understanding that the government is to promote good for people. Now, this is not the place to go into what all goes into all of this, but Tim Keller says something uh, about this that was very interesting. He says this. He says, Christians need to be wary of extreme ideological views on the role of government. On the one hand, it is hard to find biblical support for the very conservative view that government should do nothing but basic law enforcement. But on the other hand, the Bible cannot support the very liberal socialist view of the government as savior. The government is given a very, very, a very, very important, but a very widespread swath. They are to promote the good. It's right in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It exists all around the world in peace-loving countries that love liberty. It's the responsibility of the government here. It is the responsibility of the government in Canada. But do we see them that way? Because it has an impact on you. Some of us might be just checking in now and saying, okay, so what was that? Government? We're talking about spiritual worship. We're still talking about spiritual worship. And so when we, when we get to, uh, well, they're to punish the bad and they're to promote the good, this has everything to do about how we live our Christian life. How are we responding to a government that's been given so much responsibility to help us as we pursue the Christian life? As we pursue what it means to live as those upon the altar, those who are investing in spiritual worship. Because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship. We must recognize government responsibilities. The government is to punish the bad. The government is to promote the good. But second, in verses 5 to 7, we see that because everything that we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must respond to government authorities. We must respond to government authorities. Now note that Paul speaks in terms of obligations. Look at verse 7 obligations seem to be in, in view here. These are things that are on our plate as we look and are faced with government, no matter what they are, no matter who they are, no matter what party they represent, no matter how we feel about them, these are our responsibilities. So if you're just checking in now, this is a good spot to do so because now you can make your list of, all right, how is my life maybe aligned with the will of God or how is my life need to change for the glory of God? We must respond to government rightly by first submission. This is in verse 5. Paul says that we must obey the laws. We must pay our taxes, our tolls. We must not, not think that in some way this is not what God would have for us because the government is X, because the government has done this or that. In verse 5, it's not only, Paul says, because of wrath, but listen, because of your conscience. Not just because they have the power to make life miserable for you, if they don't, but as a way of submitting to God. We submit to God by submitting to those in authority. That means that you and I, we need to obey our government whether we think we're going to get caught or not. We live in a world, even among Christians, where we think I can get away with something as long as I don't get caught. Now, this is a full disclosure moment because I text while I drive. It's a problem. And I I must tell you that I'm in rehab for texting while driving because I I blame my prior life when I had to do the stick shift, eat a hamburger, uh, you know, look at my watch, drive a car, and check my phone as it maybe was ringing. I'm trying not to do that, but I I don't want to be hypocritical here because I have my family here who knows that I text while I drive. And And I'm reminded constantly by even the youngest in our family that this is not God's will for my life and it is a sure way of making me change in the moment. It's very, very helpful when your children rebuke you for things that are obviously illegal, right? It's a sure way. It's important for me to mention this because I don't want to proceed without without, you thinking that I'm pointing the finger at anybody in particular. We need to obey our government whether we're going to get caught or not. I've had Christians tell me over the years, oh, I don't worry about that on my taxes because the government has no way of knowing about that income anyway. Listen, family, brothers, sisters, we don't tell the truth to the government because we might get caught. I do so because we worship a God of truth and we fill out our taxes as an act of worship to God because he sees everything we do. This is what life is like on the altar. And if we think this is not important, then why is Paul taking seven verses of this very important chapter on spiritual worship to tell us about life like this? Now, one very important caveat here is that the government's rule is not absolute in our lives. It it very well might be the elephant in the room right now. And Paul says that submitting to them is a way of submitting to God, which means if obeying them ever caused us to disobey a direct command from God, we are duty-bound to practice civil disobedience. We do not have to obey the government when they tell us to do things that are clearly against scriptures. Many commentators say that that, uh, Paul in this passage is alluding to a discussion that maybe Jesus had in Matthew chapter 22 with the Pharisees when they asked him whether uh, they should pay taxes or not. You remember that story in Matthew 22. The Pharisees there said, hey Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? Matthew says that in asking him this, they were trying to entangle Jesus in his words. Someone has commented that in those days, taxes were paid to Rome, uh, who had moved into Jerusalem as occupiers, and they were really oppressive. This one writer says the taxes that they collected were not only to fund Caesar's lavish lifestyles, but they paid for the soldiers and the prisons and the crucifixions. And by the way, did you know this, that the Colosseum, which was used to torture and kill uh, Jews and Christians, was built during this time by Jewish taxes. And so, see, if Jesus says yes to these, these inquisitors, that they should pay taxes, then he's saying that they should give money to help sponsor oppression. And that will make a lot of Jewish zealots mad. And uh, they will want to kill him even more But you see on the, on the other side If Jesus says no Don't pay taxes Then the Romans will mark him As a revolutionary And they will kill him So what would Jesus do? It's a good time for a Jesus juke, Right? It's kind of where we see that as well Jesus gives him they, He drops on them The greatest of all Jesus jukes. He asks them Show me a coin Show me the coin that you used to pay your tax. And then he says, Whose image does it have on it? They reply, Caesar's, Tiberius Caesar. He says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Now, when he said this, it says, They marveled. They marveled. What made them marvel? Well, I think this is a a subtle, maybe a subtle teaching in that message that undermines the government's claim on our lives. You see, the coin has Caesar's image on it. But whose image do you have stamped on you? You see, that belonged to Caesar. So give him what belongs to him. It's got his face right on it, but you have been marked by God. You have God's image stamped on your very life. So you honor God. You render to Caesar. Let him have what belongs to him, but you render to God what clearly belongs to God. And that means you never obey Caesar in a way that would make you disobey God because while Caesar has his image on your stuff, God has his image on your life. One scholar says, If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. I'll repeat that. If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, then civil disobedience is our Christian duty. All throughout the Bible, we see examples of believers who submit to to authorities that are foolish and incompetent. Think of Joseph and Potiphar and Pharaoh and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and others. But we also see examples of those who disobey the rulers when the rulers demand to do something that involves disobedience to a direct command of God. Think Daniel Think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Peter in Acts 4, who says, we would rather obey God than man. Paraphrase, thank you very much. Well, where might Christians do that today? Now, here might be some examples for you. Jot these ones down. When the government requires a doctor to violate his or her Hippocratic oath and perform an abortion, or forces a health care provider to pay for it, you should obey God rather than man. If the government requires a policeman to punish someone without due cause or pressure the judge to enforce judgment in biased ways that serve the powerful, the judge should obey God, not man. Let's bring it closer to home. If a boss requires you to lie to extend profits, you should obey God and not man. If the government ever forced me or you to perform a same-sex wedding... By God's grace, we would obey God, not men. If government ever forced us to be silent about the gospel or to refrain from teaching our convictions in this place, what would you do? I trust that you would obey God rather than man. And so in all of these situations and many more, those lists you're making right now in your mind as, as I speak, we need to obey God rather than man. And so we submit, yes, as unto God, so from our hearts, but never in a way that disobeys our Lord. Second, the text tells us that we need to honor those in authority. Notice the progression in these verses. First, submit and pay taxes. Now in verse 7, we need to pay our obligations to everyone. We need to honor those to whom we owe honor. Now, notice that they are owed honor. They are not honored because we give them honor. They are owed honor. For most of us, it will be relatively easy to pay our taxes, but Paul's tells us something that might just irritate us just a slight little bit here. We are to treat the one in authority with respect and honor. So, when you talk about Prime Minister Trudeau, it's just a question, do you do so with respect and honor? Would you have ever spoken about Prime Minister Harper that way? Now, I know, I know what you're saying. What if you don't respect the person in office or agree with them? Isn't that just being hypocritical? Is that being a liar? Like I said, I'm sure Paul felt this way about the incestuous mother-killing, cross-dressing, horse-promoting Caesar. But you're not in his camp, right? You have way better leadership than he did. But you can still, he says, give them the respect that they are owed in their office. And you should support them, appreciate them, and obey them wherever you can. Wherever you and I can, we need to obey and honor. I don't see anywhere in Paul's letters where he signs off with hashtag not my Caesar. Nowhere. Martin Luther King was a great example of, to, to me as I, I've got to appreciate him over the last few years as they've been commemorating his life and uh, reading a little bit more about his life. Um, he's a man who attempted to honor and submit to authorities even as he defied them. He was a master at defying them, but honoring and respecting them. If you read his letter, uh, letter from a Birmingham jail, you'll see that uh, he recognizes the legitimacy of government, even pleading with them to fulfill God's, their God-given responsibilities even as he defied them. So the end game on this one is simple. Uh, you and I, yes, we can honor even as we disobey. Uh, next, the text tells us not only to submit and honor but we need to engage. We need to engage. We must respond to government rightly by engaging in the government. This word is not directly in our text, but I'm attempting to, to hear kind of bridge Paul's context to ours, and I think it's, it's justified in this case. Paul recognizes that government here is supposed to be a force for good and a source of blessing. I think that's, that's implied here. And in other words, we see Paul urging Christians to pray for government leaders to act justly. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, uh, he encourages uh, prayer for government leaders and all who are in authority that we might live peaceful lives. And we see that when Paul stands before religious leaders, he encourages them to think biblically about their roles. In uh, the book of the Acts, for example, he pleads for religious liberty. He's engaging the government. He's not standing in the corner, in the shadow. He's engaging them. He's telling people, listen, be involved. Pray for them. Hear what they have to to say. But think biblically. Paul did not live in a, a voting democracy. The emperor was the absolute ruler. So that's about all he could do. But in our country, in Canada right now, The Canadian people sit in the ruler's chair. Although it might not always seem that way. But we sit in the ruler's chair, and that means that we bear ultimate responsibility for how authority is used. The sword that Paul says God has given to earthly rulers lies at least partially in our hands. Because we have been given the prerogative to choose whose hand it goes into and then how they use it. I can't see Paul urging Christians to pray and speak out Uh, and us not to engage in the ways available to us. We need to engage. It seems to me that in our system of government, if we fail to be informed, if we fail to vote, if we fail to be active in our government, then what does that tell us about our spiritual worship, if that's what Paul is talking about here? It's a part of our spiritual worship that we're missing out on. We are every bit as negligent as would have been the governor in Paul's day who spent all of his time in leisure and never attending to matters of state. As it stands today, 34% of eligible voters don't vote. And and that's a good number. It's usually worse than that. This is from the last federal election. Paul tells us in verse 8, Fulfill what we owe to others. Fulfill what we owe to others. So my friends, electing good leaders who will enact good policy is one of the best ways of loving our neighbor. And so we owe it to them to get engaged and to vote. We need to be engaged as believers. We can't be passive because we just disappear and and we're thought of as those who either are just yelling in the corner, or worse, just don't care. We need to engage. Submit, honor, engage. And then here's one more. We need to moderate. I mean this in the verb form, moderate, not the noun, be a moderate. Moderate. Moderate your uh, expectations. This whole passage, I think, as, as I as I've studied it this week, I find that it's, it's really built on the foundation, on the assumption that government and their role is very limited and can do only so much. But our ultimate hope is never there. We don't rest everything on who's leading our country. Even the best of human governments are only temporary imperfect perfect fill-ins for God, and none of them fulfill that vision of a more perfect union for which we belong. We need to moderate our expectations. These things will pass. And so when we are going through seasons of persecution, by God's grace, we've been given opportunity to see governments come and governments go. But we have a window. This might be the last government that you sit under in your life. Are you using this opportunity for spiritual worship or have you just kind of forgotten about that element of your life? Paul thinks it's pretty important. And so by the Spirit of God, I trust it's important for us today. Our hope is not in politics because we know that salvation didn't come to earth riding on the wings of a T1, a tax form for those who don't pay taxes. But he came cradled in a manger. That's our hope. Our hope is not in legislation, but in the Lamb. And that means our primary work here as believers is not politics. Amen to that? We're not here to be political. Yes, we're to be involved. We need to vote. We need to be salt and light. We need to speak prophetically where we can speak truth to power, right? Speaking truth to power. And some of us should go into politics. We should make it our profession. We should try to influence for God's glory, but Our primary work here on earth is not in politics. Our primary work is the glory of God and the upbuilding of the church. We move the world most, not through the ballot box, but through prayer, through prayer. We're more concerned with who's who's your Christ than who's your prime minister, to put it in another way. The work of evangelism is 10,000 times more important than anything that the Globe and Mail is paying attention to today. And by the way, as Paul shows us, we Christians can do our work even when people in power would not have been our choice. Now, I say that because for many of you, you think you can only really thrive when your people are in power. And I know that because that's the way I think. And I think we're pretty alike. Oh, great. Now another liberal government or now another conservative government or whatever. Some of you are counting the days to October 16th, 2023. It's going to be a glorious time. You are distressed and woe is me and what are we going to do and what kind of country will this be for my kids to grow up in when your guy is not in power or your gal is not in power. Well, let me tell you, the early church never had the privilege of having their guy in power, ever. But we don't find them in Acts 4 going, Oh no, Caligula is doing what again? And what are we going to do? And they got on their faces and they said, Oh, sovereign Lord, who created the heavens and the earth. And the Holy Spirit shook the room where they were praying. Why? Because they knew They had a better king they served, King Jesus. That's whom they served. They had a better country that they sought, one not made with hands. They had a better party they gave themselves to because they were citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom of God. Our guy, you see, is always in power, is he not? Nick Ribkin in his book *The Insanity of God*, writes about an IMB missionary, uh, whom um, many, many of us might have um, heard of, uh, Billy Marshall. And he asked believers—Billy um, asked believers in China—who were sometimes harassed by the police there—how um, they responded. And in the book, Ripkin relays how they did. They said these these believers—they responded. Uh, When the police say, if you don't stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street, to which the believers responded, oh, so you want my house? Well, if you do, then you'll need to talk to Jesus because I gave the property to him. And then he writes, they usually do not uh, know what to make uh, of that answer. So they say, well, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you when uh, we take your property. You and your family will have nowhere to live. And the Christians in China that Ripkin was speaking about said this, oh, you must do what you must do. And then we will be free, you see, when you do what you must do, because we trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. Of course, this infuriated the authorities in this one particular uh, story because they said, listen, if you keep this up, we will beat you. To which the Christians replied, well, then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing. Well, then we will put you in prison, the police would threaten. By now, the believers' response is almost predictable. They said, then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free for real we will be free to plant churches in prison, if you please. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities would vow. And then the response came, then we will be free to go to heaven and we will be with Jesus forever. You see, our guy is always in power and we are always to follow him. Amen? Now, you're going to say, what if government is unjust? Cuz practically, what if they're unjust? Well, I'm glad you asked because if you were here, you would have already read and studied through Romans 8. Here's a verse for you, Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph knew this, didn't he? Back in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, this whole mentality of God is on the throne must pervade every aspect of our lives. This is why this is important to Paul. As he's talking about being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If we ignore this, if we take this teaching and we just say, well, Come back to it at voting time. You can do that. That would be great to do that. But if we ignore that day to day, we are removing from our lives an element of worship opportunity that God has laid up for us. Because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must recognize government responsibilities. And because everything we do is an act of spiritual worship, we must respond to government rightly. pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. We thank you that those of us who have been saved by grace through faith, we no longer have to worry about the future, but we often worry about the present until we are reminded that Caesar's image is not stamped on our hearts, but your image is stamped on us. Father, as we think about being heaven's citizens under human government, uh, we have many questions because it's a complicated issue. But Lord, what we do know is that your word has provided us with direction to recognize and to respond. And Father, when we put you in that place, when we see you in that place, over our lives, Father, there is an abundance of peace for we know we can live here. We can serve here. We can thrive here for your glory. It can be done because you've called us to do it. But Father, we know we can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. So Father, we pray that those of us who know Christ as Savior, we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would bring this passage to our minds in every aspect where government comes into play whether it be driving our cars or talking on phones or paying our taxes or any other thing whether it be voting or whatever it is Lord would you impress upon us the responsibility to act as we should act in ways that are becoming of those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus and Father see that at the end of the spear is your hand so Father help us to see this And in doing so, honor you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said,